everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech While You Trek. I am your host, Adam, and today we're going to be talking user-centered design. I have three guests in the studio with me. I have Jill Kirtland, I have Greg Smith, and I have Nicole Norton. So please introduce yourselves. So hi, I'm Jill Kirtland, and I am a Learning and Development Innovation Manager of PwC. I've been with the firm for almost two years now. I was brought into the firm for my background in design thinking. I'm Nicole Norton, and I am a experienced design lead with the Your Tomorrow team. I came in to the firm as an art director to work with what became the creative team and have since moved over to Your Tomorrow. Hey, I'm Greg Smith, currently sitting under Your Tomorrow as an experienced design lead, formerly with the creative organization. And before that, I worked at a number of digital agencies doing a lot of web development and application development and a lot of the kinds of things that I'm doing now in my current role. Well, this then becomes an appropriate point in the show to sort of coalesce a definition of user-centered design. How would you explain to our listeners what user-centered design is? I think it's it's more than anything just a process or a methodology for designing things or, or solving problems, really. That could be a physical product. It could be a service. Really anything that has a, a human being at the center of it. And I think the core tenets of what user-centered design are Obviously, you need to talk to your user. You need to understand their needs in order to best solve for them. And also, it's very dependent on iteration and kind of continually prototyping and testing to quickly get to a good solution. Yeah, luckily, it's in the name. (laughs) Um, It is the user is at the center of everything that we do if we want customer satisfaction. So the first component of user-centered design is really talking to your users. Believe it or not, a lot of people don't do that. It's just something that people forget to do. Sometimes they'll bring them in after they've created a prototype or later on when they're ready to launch the product or service. But one of the things that you want to do to start is personas. So what I do is I actually set up one-on-one interviews with our users. And I try to do this across a diverse group of people, people at different staff levels, different gender, different backgrounds, different roles, and talk to them about why it is that they're doing the things that they're doing and what is it that they need help with. So when you do those user interviews, a lot of times you're uncovering things and getting insights that you didn't even know existed. And sometimes that can even change what you thought your problem was and what you're going to be designing for. Now, when you're doing these persona interviews, the most important thing is to not publish it, the personas that you're going to design for as individuals, because a lot of times you can figure out who those people are. So what you want to do is create a compositor, aggregate, and create these almost fictional personas about who your user is. I also have a lot of fun with it. Sometimes we'll use a little alliteration. So we have frustrated Fred and preconceived Paula. And Paula and Fred come up a lot. They do actually. come up yeah. a lot. They really do. Yes. I have to say one thing that I found that we've sort of noticed whenever we do go through some of these projects is when a persona is successful, they actually start referring to the persona throughout the project life cycle. That it's like, I don't know that Fred would really relate to that. So, I mean, I do feel like we kind of use the persona even throughout the entire process to kind of gauge the success of how closely aligned are we with this persona that we've developed. Can you talk a little bit about how we get from personas to prototyping and testing? Talk a little bit about the journey mapping. Similar to what Jill was saying about the personas, which is kind of the personification of the problem, journey map just kind of takes that to the next step and it helps to 
illustrate what the user's path through the product or the service is. So really, it's just a visual diagram that helps to show how the user is moving through the product or the service, what the touch points are. But really, the ultimate goal is to illustrate that path so that you can identify where there's pain points along the way and where you can potentially solve for. And also so that the team as a whole can kind of align around what that user's journey looks like. Going off of what Greg was saying specifically about the user flows, prototypes are really helpful tools really throughout the process, but they usually come in most often after we have a persona, after we have here is the user's journey, and then we're really concentrating on building the solution. So the the prototype itself is really just the visualization of what that solution looks like so that we actually have something to put in front of testers to get their feedback. I think whenever you hear of prototypes, most people think of the development world and the digital product and real high fidelity, like they have interactivity, they look really slick, but in reality, really a prototype can be anything. It can be a sketch on a napkin, it can be a process diagram, it can be anything physically visual that you can put in front of a user. What are some of the key uses of each of these components? I've done personas to help understand some of the key challenges within our organization. So it might be organizational process. It could be a social issue. It's just understanding your user and getting to that empathy and understanding what motivates them during that journey. For journey maps, there's two big things, I think. One is identifying pain points, which helps the team understand where to kind of focus their efforts. But another one that I think is just as important, if not more so, but maybe not as obvious, is it helps really to allow the team to gain alignment. So if you think about a customer's journey throughout something, right? They're initially finding out about a product or a service. They might be doing some competitive research along the way. They are maybe contacting your company to learn a little bit more about it. Then they maybe ultimately purchase the product and then hopefully they're a repeat buyer, right? So that's a pretty seamless timeline for the user. But if you think about it from the organization's perspective, there's a lot of different touch points and likely that cuts across a lot of different groups, right? So there's sales at some point in there, there's marketing, there's customer service, there's all these different things. And a lot of times in organizations like our own, those groups have their own metrics for success and their own goals and their own things that they're trying to do. And so if they're not really aware of what that broader picture looks like and they're just executing on their specific things, it can really lead to a very disjointed and and confusing or frustrating experience for the user so that everybody can buy in and everybody can understand what their specific slice of it is. It really allows organizations to execute in a lot more of an efficient way. Yeah. And then on the prototype, I think to Greg's point specifically about highlighting the pain points, most teams, that's kind of where you focus is where are our users having pain and how can we build a solution that helps address that pain? The journey map, I think, kind of makes it obvious of what we end up prototyping and testing. An example that I can give you is really a button labeling for pwc.com. So for our corporate site, instead of asking a user, what should this label be? What should it say? In theory, you'd get a lot better answers even if you just sketched a button on a piece of paper and asked them what are their reactions or what are their expectations of where this button would lead. Well, that's a great micro example, Nicole. And so kind of expounding on that, are there some other areas within the firm where we have used these components successfully? Actually, weeks after I joined the firm, they wanted me to interview 
people at all different levels within learning and development and find out how people are reacting to this new way of doing things. And so that was very insightful and eye-opening. So I found it very helpful for the leadership itself because I handed over to them these personas and they were like, wow, I didn't know that, that people were feeling that way or thinking that. And so it changed the way that they were going to solve their problems. Yeah, persona development is so therapeutic. It is. <laughs> I say, it I'm both is. Ends. It yeah. is. When I start out, I say, tell me how you're feeling about this. And believe me, they do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite prototyping examples was something that it's sort of a non-traditional example. And we were actually on a campus because we wanted to be close to our target, which were students. And the team had this hypothesis about giving students a different, more relaxed environment to have these recruiting discussions with. And so they were actually able to craft a prototype of a space using existing furniture. They grabbed some snacks that we had off the snack table and actually were able to test that hypothesis with real students right there. And it was just one of the examples that really, really stuck with me about something that we've got a hypothesis, we got the people, we got the chairs, let's test this and play with this. And it's not what you would think is a prototype, but actually was a prototype that was easily tested and we learned a a lot about. All right, so now to the improvement through failure part of the show. Can you guys tell us about a time that you either failed or were unsuccessful implementing user-centered design and then what that taught you? I think one of the biggest things about user-centric design and how it can fail is when you bring in your own bias. I can't ask them leading questions and I have to shut up and listen and let them talk. Yeah, we've actually talked specifically about taking on a Spock persona (laughs) in those interviews themselves. Just as human beings, we all want to have great conversations and be friendly. But in reality, what you're looking for is to not insert your personal bias or get agreement down this path. If that's You don't not want really to interject your own yeah. um, experiences into yeah, it and yeah, be like, oh sure. yeah, I totally relate to that. For sure. So design thinking has come up a lot in this conversation. Could you help explain the ways in which uh, design thinking and user-centered design are related, are tied together? User-centric design, if you were to think of that as sort of this large umbrella Design thinking is a specific methodology that sits underneath that along with others. Design thinking itself is pretty broad and there's a lot that fits under there, but it's certainly kind of a subset of the larger user-centered design practice. And I know that there was a Tech While You Trek podcast that was done on design thinking as well, so definitely check that one out. So now I'm going to ask you to, to put on your distiller's hats. What is one thing, if our listeners take only one thing away from this podcast along the lines of user-centered design, what would you want that one thing to be? Well, I think it's that you do not have to use user-centric design for just a product. You can use it for organizational changes, processes, social issues, whatever, just as long as the human is the center of it. It is completely worth the time and effort. And I think that people are doing a lot of this already, and we're just not calling it out as this thing or this methodology. But really, any relationship conversation, any proposal debrief, any metrics review, any of those conversations gives us insight into what customers need. So to really kind of mine any and all conversations that we're having even already, then we're doing a lot. I'm going to ask you guys the questions I ask all our guests before I kick them out of the studio. We'll go around and let's see what we got here. So the first question is, 
What is your one bold prediction? And be bold. I dare you. Be bold. What is your one bold prediction for technology in the year 2040? 2040. All right. Well, with technology moving so exponentially fast, really, the only thing I can hope, and that's maybe not even a bold prediction, but the only thing I can hope is that we have curbed our environmental impact by technical solutions. It's going to be more important than ever for companies to really focus on solving specific and meaningful problems for their customers using technology, certainly. But it's not enough anymore to just use technology for technology's sake, right? It has to really be deliberate. So if we think about how in the future we're going to actually have two different groups, one is going to be human and one is going to be computers and AI. I think user-centric design is going to be so much more important in the future because we have to still get to that human part and the empathy. And there are going to be a lot of designs out there for the computers looking at patterns, but we still have to remember to design for the humans and not just for the non-humans. Question number two, what is your favorite source for new technology information? I subscribe to MIT Review and all that, but I also subscribe to IDEO. They have some really great blog articles and webinars around user-centric design. I read a lot of industry books, listen to a ton of podcasts. One of my favorite ones right now is The Other F Word. It is specifically about failure, and it's amazing. I kind of have an obsession with failure right now. Um, (laughs) But I I do listen to a lot of podcasts on technology, storytelling, and specifically uh, user experience. Technology-related, I would say I follow Wired and get quite a bit from them and subscribe to their daily newsletter. So I think they're a good source for a lot of technology. All right. And the last question is, what makes someone a leader in the digital age? I think the leader in a digital world really needs to focus on not putting stuff out there that is perfect. And we need to be able to put it out there and have people play with it. And that will help us improve things. And so a leader in a digital world needs to be just a little bit more agile and be able to accept failure. My answer is actually a little bit more broad than just like the digital age, if that is acceptable. I'll let it slide. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I feel like a true leader needs to be honest and needs to be honest with themselves, with their team, with all parties. They need to be open to honest debate. What is the point of having these discussions if we're only going to highlight the things that are bright and shiny. Similar to Nicole, right? For me, it's somebody who can acknowledge that they don't have the answer, but also lay out a path for how we're going to get there. That includes experimentation and testing and all a lot of the things that we've talked about today. Jill Kirtland, Greg Smith, Nicole Norton, thank you so much for spending some time coming by and talking to us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This has been Tech While You Trek. I have been your host, Adam, and we will talk to you next time. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.